0: Thanks to everyone for joining us. Uh, This is our Atlas Society Twitter space today. I'm Scott Schiff, and we're very glad to have Atlas Society senior scholar Stephen Hicks discussing Christians, humanists, and who ended slavery. Christians and humanists uh, both deserve credit for the dramatic reduction in slavery in the modern world. Yet much controversy exists over who should get the lion's share of the credit. In this session, Professor Hicks takes up the moral and historical arguments. And after he's done with his opening statement, we'll go ahead and open it up to questions. Uh, Professor Hicks, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Okay, uh, thanks for uh, hosting, Scott. Uh, Just as a a host question, how uh, long would you like my opening remarks to be uh, to make sure we have time for discussion. This is a one-hour session, is that correct? Yes, uh,
0: you know, maybe 20 minutes. I'm sorry? 20-25 minutes.
1: Ah, okay, yeah, that should be doable. If I get to uh, Motor Mouth, just uh, jump in and, and let me know it's time to, to, uh, to divert. So, Yes, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot recently about the, uh, the issue of slavery. I don't want to talk about the, the racial components and uh, some of the bad faith arguing about slavery and so forth, right? because I think there are some very interesting uh, uh, historical lessons to be learned from the ending of slavery, as well as some philosophical lessons. Uh, you know, it really is one of the great achievements in human history to think that for uh, you know, as long as humans were interacting with each other, as far as we know, every culture and every era, slavery in various forms has been practiced. And by some estimates, uh, more than 75% of the world's population were slaves or serfs or something very close to uh, to a kind of slavery. So the fact that in the last couple of centuries, we've taken slavery seriously and made uh, very powerful and successful efforts at ending slavery. That's uh, that's a remarkable thing uh, for for historians, moralists, and, and philosophers to be interested interested in. Of course, uh, uh, there's a lot of blame storming in current cultural politics uh, uh, about uh, you know, who who is uh, record with respect to slavery is worse than uh, than than others peoples. And uh, a lot of it is uh, kind of motivated by kind of primitive uh, ethnic solidarities and primitive uh, racisms that are still with us to uh, to this day. But I'm more interested in the positive question: uh, who who does get the credit for this amazingly positive achievement in uh, in in human history? Uh, so that's one framing question. I'd like to emphasize the positive uh, rather than emphasize the, uh, the blame storming and the negative. But there is a cultural politics, current cultural politics component of this that's interesting to me. I've been interacting uh, in the last six months or so with uh, a number of people who are conservatives. Conservatives uh, is a pretty big tent. And uh, the issues of racism, of course, are on the minds of conservatives uh, as they are on the minds of everybody in the last few years. And this historical issue about uh, the ending of slavery has assumed a kind of prominence in, uh, in, in conservative circles. And so I've been having some interactions with different sorts of conservatives on, on this issue. And a lot of it uh, uh, focuses on how conservatives of this generation, who in some ways are resurgent, they're becoming more organized, more uh, intellectual, better funded, and more intellectually uh, active as well, is that if you take the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is the era, the 1700s, when the first serious arguments against slavery were developed, the first serious movements against slavery were put into place, and uh, all of the institutions uh, of the modern world not just the philosophy and the ideas of the modern world uh, but those uh, uh, the, the philosophy and the ideas became institutionalized in science in engineering in politics in economics in the restructuring of family relations and how we do religion uh, it was an extraordinarily revolutionary century in uh, 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 overturning many institutions and putting in to place the kinds of institutions that we, uh, that we more or less take for granted. And this era of the Enlightenment then is a, a huge standout era. And so conservatives uh, often have an uneasy relationship to the Enlightenment. Uh, and uh, in one way, their attitudes toward the issue of slavery is to uh, devise conservatives uh, in, into, into different approaches. So that's what I want to say one of the f- framing issues here is also uh, my trying to work out what's going on in the contemporary conservative intellectual movement Now, there's one school of conservatism that is uh, i think of them as traditionalist conservatives and what they will typically argue is that the modern world or the enlightenment has been a giant mistake that it's fundamentally wrong that it's taking people away from from good traditions from good religious traditions but specifically in the west from christianity and that what good conservatives need to do is reject fundamentally the Enlightenment and kind of go back to the good old days, go back to uh, the time before the modern world was uh, was uh, was corrupted by the ideas of the Enlightenment. So that's one form of, of conservatism. There's another prominent form of conservatism, though, that uh, recognizes the
0: Stephen, I can't hear you.
1: All right, well, I am uh, I can hear you now. Ah, okay. So for how long have you not been able to hear me?
0: Just maybe twenty seconds.
1: Okay. All right, so let me then yeah go back and just say this second version of conservatism. Uh, holds that the enlightenment has been a good thing not a completely a good thing but it has achieved many good things and it achieved those independently uh, uh, of, of, uh, of Christianity independent of traditions that they also think are, are important so they do not want to reject the enlightenment but their position then is to say that the enlightenment is incomplete and that we need to have Uh, good conservative traditions, say specifically Christian uh, religious traditions to complete uh, the the civilization. So the enlightenment and Christianity will both uh, uh, in hybrid form or in some sort of aggregate form make up a, a full and healthy modern civilization. And then there's a third form of of conservative uh, Christianity that will argue that uh, the Enlightenment has done some good things, but those good things were not independent of conservative traditions or independent of Christianity, but rather Christianity is the proper foundation for civilization, and that what happened during the Enlightenment was that some of the kind of the latent potentialities within Christianity finally manifested themselves. And so the uh, Enlightenment was not any sort of an independent set of cultural achievements, but rather an an unfolding or a flowering of something that was within Christianity as as well. And so the issue of slavery, as well as being interesting in its own right, is then also, uh, in my thinking, uh, partly motivated by my thinking about what's going on in the in the uh, um, the conservative circles, and I see these three different strategies there. Now, let me announce my uh, my conclusion, though, up front, and then I'll start into my argument. I'm going to argue that historically, um, um, Uh, 75 percent, this is a little bit of fake math, but 75 percent of the credit for ending slavery should go to the Enlightenment, Enlightenment humanism, and that about 25 percent of the credit can properly go to Christianity uh, uh, in the modern world in the 1700s. Uh, That's a historical claim, and it's a historical claim that is to say that if you look at the people who are actively involved in making uh, uh, the abolition movement come into existence intellectually uh, as as activist organizations that actually got slavery uh, uh, relegated to backwaters and, and ended in civilized parts of the world, Uh, uh, Most of the credit then goes to people who are much more secular, more humanistic, more inspired by enlightenment-founded ideals. But there was a significant group of Christians, uh, uh, well-meaning, true-believing Christians who also should historically get, uh, get credit. Philosophically, though, I think uh, the balance shifts some and that the the force of the arguments and the force of the principles that actually made possible the ending of slavery in the modern world, uh, the Enlightenment should get much more of the credit uh, and that uh, the reason why Christianity had uh, in the modern world an outsized impact. Uh, I need to say more about that. But I want to say that in terms of the philosophy of Christianity, you don't get as much anti-slavery out of it, however you properly think it should be interpreted. But you do philosophically get a huge amount of mileage, muscle, and, and actual rubber meeting the road when you imply Enlightenment humanism. All right, now that's just to announce my conclusions. Why? How do we decide uh, who gets, gets credit? So I want to take up the Christian side of the argument first. And say, if we're going to make a Christian case for uh, Christianity getting the credit for abolitionism, for ending slavery, and so forth, how would you make a Christian case for that? And the most obvious thing is to say, if you're going to make a Christian case, the Christian case has to be based on the Bible and what the Bible says. So the first point of method will be to go and look at the Bible and on the basis of what we find in the Bible, see it, what we can say against slavery and so forth. Now, then we have to take the Bible and divide it into the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament or the Old Testament and the uh, and the New Testament. And look at what is said in, in, uh, in those texts. Now, uh, to put it bluntly, if you go into the Old Testament, you find uh, no problem whatsoever with the existence of Slavery. Slavery is uh, is is part of the fabric of culture. There are many acceptances of slavery. Um, now, by acceptances, that's going can be parsed out a little bit more. There are what I what I think of as more passive acceptances, where slavery is mentioned uh, as an example, as a fact of life. Uh, and there is no attempt to, uh, to, to say it's a bad thing or to reject it. It's just uh, taken for granted, like, so to speak. And so there's an awareness of slavery and just an acceptance of slavery as, as part of the, uh, the, the, the human order. But even stronger than that, there are many places in the Old Testament where there is active acceptance of slavery, as slavery is in some sense proper. There are people who are condemned to slavery and that is directly or indirectly seen as an act of justice, as something that is appropriate to do. There are many of the major figures who are heroes in the Old Testament, who own slaves. Uh, and there is no, no suggestion that there's anything improper with being a hero of, uh, of the Old Testament and and, uh, and owning, owning slaves. So what we then find is, in the Old Testament, nothing that would support the idea that God is against slavery, that any of the major heroes of the Old Testament are against slavery. And if you don't have that, then you don't have a case for, for, for making uh, the case that uh, several thousands of years later, uh, uh, that your movement or your set of ideas is responsible for, for ending slavery. Then I think, you know, kind of an obvious point here, if God or the God of the Old Testament were opposed to slavery, He would make it very clear you know he makes the uh, very clear you know the dozens and dozens and dozens of things that he is opposed to he's opposed to adultery he's opposed to bearing false witnesses and the list goes on and on he makes it very clear and he punishes people for doing the wrong thing and he makes it very clear what they are what they're being punished for we don't find any of that not even a hint of that uh, with respect to slavery right whatsoever so that's uh, a significant part of the Bible. Of course, for Christians, the New Testament is the more important part of the Bible. So what we would then do as a, as a second method point is to say, well, what does the New Testament say about Christianity or sorry about uh, about slavery. Now the central figure here of course is uh, Jesus. He's the one for whom the, 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 uh, the religion is named and so what we would then do is look at the reports of what Jesus said about this that and the other thing and then we would look specifically for what does Jesus have to say about slavery and if we wanted to make a Christian case for saying that Christianity gets the credit in the 1700s and 1800s for ending slavery then the most important evidence that we would find is that Jesus has something to say that supports doing so. Now uh, when we look though at the New Testament we find that Jesus basically says absolutely nothing about the ending of slavery Again, Jesus is not shy about making moral pronouncements on all sorts of things, dozens and dozens and dozens of things, some of them quite forcefully, some of them quite clearly, some in more parable form, but we know what the point is, slavery never According to Jesus, is something that he singles out and says that this is wrong. That's an abomination. That this should be ended. Instead, what we get is occasional mess uh, messages of slavery, uh, but uh, but it's it's used analogically in a way that when you, uh, you know that, that that it's an endorsement not of slavery but of a positive moral lesson uh, of, that, of which slavery is meant to be illustrative. So again, we have a big omission. If Jesus was opposed to slavery, uh, and and if Jesus is supposed to be one's moral teacher according to Christianity, laying out the universal truths and all of the really important things, the fact that slavery is not on the list for Jesus, that strikes me as, as an important omission. Now, uh, if we turn to other figures whose writings are recorded in the Old Testament there, I think the case is even worse because we get figures like Paul, who uh, uh, actively endorses slavery. Uh, you know, you know, slavery exists, and, but he goes out of his way to say explicitly that slaves should accept their condition. They should not uh, rebel against their masters. Uh, uh, and so there's, there's an active acceptance by uh, Paul, who was extraordinarily important in the, uh, in the New Testament and the founding of Christianity. And then and again, here it seems like a positive endorsement of, of, of slavery. So this, I think, is probably the most important thing uh, with respect to the issue of slavery then 1,800 years later, seventeen or 1,800 years later, the founding text of Christianity either positively accepts slavery, seems in some cases positively to endorse slavery, and in its long list of all the things that it says that it is opposed, slavery never appears on that list. So I think from the get-go the idea that somehow in Christianity it's going to get a substantial amount of credit for ending slavery, that's, that's, uh, uh, that's going to be a very weak Uh, a weak conclusion to try to to reach. Now, we might then say, well, uh, Christians don't always have to rely only on the Bible and what the Bible says. Maybe we as Christians can rely on the interpreters of the Bible, the many smart, learned, uh, uh, well-meaning interpreters of the Bible. And uh, so then uh, we would then say who are the most important interpreters of the Bible and and working out systematically what Christianity means. Maybe there are some nuggets or some things that are stated obliquely and the implications of those need to be drawn out by very smart theologians working in the Christian tradition. So maybe there is a case that can be constructed and if we're going to try to find that case, then what we should do is look at what the best thinkers in the Christian tradition had to say about slavery. Now, how uh, we can then have some a longer discussion about who the most thinkers, are, important thinkers are, most influential thinkers are in the Christian tradition. Just to keep things short here, I'm going to name four. I'll take two in the Catholic tradition, two from the Protestant tradition. Uh, and in my judgment, these are the most important thinkers in the, in the Christian tradition, but we could have a side argument about that. I'm not going to mention the Eastern Orthodox tradition at all. Uh, the, the case is even worse there with respect to Christianity and slavery on into the modern world. Uh, but uh, uh, if we go the Catholic tradition, then I think the most important theologians, the geniuses, and the most influential too. Are Augustine in the late 300s, and Aquinas in the 1200s, and then if we go to the Protestant tradition, I think the two most important are Martin Luther in the early 1500s, and then John Calvin in the early to middle part of the the 1500s. So that then would be to say over the course of about 1,500 years uh, of Christian uh, theology all of the really smart people working out what Christianity is what the arguments are these are in the Catholic tradition the two Augustine and Aquinas who have risen to the top as the towering geniuses of influence and I think in the Protestant tradition Luther and Calvin have a, a, a not quite equal but certainly a, a very high status on that side of the uh, side of the divide. So, if we could then say maybe not the Bible directly, but the Bible as interpreted by its best theologians, these four, we can make a Christian case for abolishing slavery. So, if we then uh, go to uh, each of the four, uh, Augustine writing in the late 300s, uh, when you read Augustine. You find that he uh, argues that slavery is allowable. Uh, It's fine. Uh, It's not an institution that he objects to fundamentally. He has uh, some arguments and some uh, recommendations that uh, slavery should not be done abusively, that uh, slave masters should uh, have have some minimal decent treatment with respect to their slaves, but you get no suggestion at all in Augustine that there's something morally objectionable per se with slavery, much less any calls for for ending it. He's then the most influential theologian after 300 years of Christianity existing, putting it together in a system, and still we don't find even 300 years later, uh, a suggestion that uh, there's something wrong with uh, slavery from, the leading Christian's perspective. If we then jump another century, another century, another century, another century, we get up to 900, 1000 1100, no Christians are calling for, none of the major Christian theologians for the end of, uh, of, of slavery. We get to St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, writing in the 1200s. And uh, 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 he, again, seems fine with slavery. Uh, Some recommendations that it should not be extreme. Uh, I think there's a more systematic discussion of slavery in Aquinas than in Augustine. Uh, I can be out-argued on on that because I've not read every word that all of these guys have written. But again, the point is you do not get in Aquinas any argument against the existence or the morality of slavery or a call for its abolishing again another century the 1300s 1400s we get into the 1500s and the biggest name in christian theology then is martin luther and uh, uh again i've not read every word that martin luther wrote uh but there's no mention of, of slavery again martin luther not shy about saying all of the things that he thinks christians should oppose that are bad immoral and, uh, and to have a universal moral framework that should be taken seriously. But there's no mention of the slavery issue and, and no call for its, its abolition. In fact, I think with his strong metaphysical dualism between body and soul, uh, the, 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 the impetus seems to be that slavery is just an irrelevant issue uh, for Martin Luther because it's, a, it's merely a bodily state. And what's really important is the state of your soul. But merely physical slavery is not going to to uh, to change the status of your soul with respect to your relationship to God. It's your soul that's important, not your bodily estate. And then uh, John Calvin, uh, in the uh, in the next generation, he also does not question slavery itself. Uh, instead, what you can find in John Calvin is occasional. Mentions that slavery is practiced in brutal fashion, and that the brutality is uh, is is wrong, Uh, and the implication then just is left that slave owners uh, should be good Christians, and that means that there should be limitations placed on how harshly they treat their slaves. But again. Nothing. So the point is that uh, now we're getting on into uh, uh, you know, the Reformation era, the 1500s, and for over a millennium and a half, uh, all of the major you know, Christian theologians and the ones who rise to the top, you don't find any condemnations of slavery. You don't find any serious questioning of slavery as an institution, you find plenty of passive acceptance of of slavery as kind of a fact of life as a social institution. Sometimes you find active acceptance of slavery. Slavery is okay, it can be a just punishment, and sometimes you get even strong, strong endorsements. So I want to then say If we uh, are going to say Christianity is either defined by what the Bible says or by what its most important uh, interpreters say, you don't get from either of those sources anything that is going to lead to uh, a a powerful abolitionist movement such as we get a couple centuries later. So um, I want then to uh, jump to the next century, um, uh, the 1600s. By the time we get into the 1600s, everyone will recognize that we are into the modern world. The Renaissance has been uh, making its mark all over Europe and spreading also in some respects to to, to the Americas. Uh, The Enlightenment by the time we get into the 1700s is clearly an intellectual force and starting to make its intellectual mark. And it's then in the 1700s that we start to see some serious action on the issue of slavery. You start to find this increasing number of individuals who question its appropriateness, not just that it's too harsh or that it's unjustly applied sometimes, but there's something wrong in principle with slavery. And you start to see the beginnings of the organizations of movements to end Slavery, and I want to then say, uh, uh, in the history of abolitionism, the most important decade is the 1780s, because in the 1780s, for the first time in history, there are three societies formed or three uh, the formal organizations founded that are dedicated to the ending of slavery. There's in 1784 in the the, the young United States, the founding of the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery. uh, uh, And that's founded in 1784. In Britain, just three years later, 1787, there's the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. That is established. And then a year later in France, there's the Society for the Friends of the Blacks that is founded. So what's interesting here is that within three to four years of each other, we have now actual organizations founded with a specific aim. To end slavery and to ameliorate the condition of the people who have suffered from from slavery, and they have been founded those three in the nations that are most affected by the Enlightenment, the nations of the Enlightenment: Britain, France, and. United States. Now, we can then say, well, uh, there's perhaps then another kind of argument that we will make about who gets the credit for the abolition of slavery. It's the Enlightenment nations, where you're going to find the most number of Enlightenment-influenced intellectuals and activists and then when we go into these nations and we say what's going on intellectually in the early United States, in, in, uh, in Britain in the 1700s, in France in the 1700s, then what we find is that there are the, this you know, new doctrine of the universal rights of man, uh, 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 the idea of individual rights, of freedom, of all individuals being self-responsible and emphasizing the all point. That this is, should be the universal condition of humankind as well in the 1700s the ideal of reason not just the ideal of individual rights but the closely related point of uh, the ideal of reason that human beings are rational that they have the capacity for learning they have the capacity for self-governance and again that this is a universal trait and to the extent that you have those ideas uh prominent in your intellectual culture, and then more broadly in your your social culture, it does make sense then that people will start to see slavery as something morally objectionable and then, with their, uh, their their newfound ideals, to want to start to do something about it, and to actually start forming societies for it. So, in the late 1600s, the importance of John Locke's philosophy, uh, Isaac Newton's science, and his science philosophy of science, and that that English Enlightenment was taken across to France by Voltaire and the other philosophers. That uh, that English Enlightenment was also taken across the ocean to colonial Americans, and it became kind of the working intellectual machinery of the early Americas, the ones who were going to be the founders of a new country. So we have the rise of liberalism, the rise of science, and correspondingly in the late 1600s and on into the 1700s, we have a decline of religion and we have a decline of authoritarianism. So a natural hypothesis comes out of this, that if we're looking for who gets the credit, it would be the rational humanistic ideals of the Enlightenment that gets the credit for questioning, challenging, and then the activism against slavery. So the Enlightenment had been around essentially for a century. It's getting the work done. Christianity at that point had been around for almost 1,800 years, and it had not done basically anything in all of that time. Now, that's in this, I'm just putting that forth as a hypothesis. I just want to say just a couple more things and then open things up for, for some questions. Okay. Uh, I want to say that I think that argument though, or the hypothesis needs to get a little bit more um, uh, nuanced. And that there's a question there, because if we look at the three societies that were formed in the 1780s, in the US, in Britain, and in France, and we just look more specifically at who the founding members of the societies were, there is a very fascinating standout fact, and that is that a majority of the founding members in the U.S. society, the Pennsylvania society, were Quakers. Uh, if, uh, 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 If you then look at the founding members of the society that was founded in Britain, they also, the majority of them were Quakers. And so then we have to say, well, the Quakers don't strike us as uh, uh, you know, people who are reading John Locke and Isaac Newton and inspired by enlightened humanistic ideals. So any hypothesis about the abolition of slavery is going to have to say something about the Quakers. Now, that then is to say, in those two societies, it was a majority of the founding members who were Quakers, and the Quakers are a Christian sect, and so maybe there is a kind of argument that Christians can make about the importance of Christianity for, or uh, for for abolition. There also were some Anglicans in the movement. There were some Presbyterians in the movement, and there were uh, a, a few people in the founding uh, uh, father of fathers of each of these movements as well who were uh, members of other Christian sects. But the fact that a majority of them, and a significant majority of them, were Quakers, I think, deserves more attention. I do want to say, though, that if you cross to France and you look at the Society for Abolition in France, you don't find any Quakers among the founding members there. Instead, what you find is mostly lapsed Catholics and...
0: I lost your sound again.
1: Maybe try... There you are. Okay, now, I'm in Buenos Aires, uh, so we might be getting some slight internet inconsistencies, but I just want to say uh, just a couple of more things. So if we go to- uh, We do want to open uh, Go ahead. Yeah, just to go to France. We don't find any Quakers. We find some lapsed Protestants, we find some lapsed Catholics, but we do find a significant number of Enlightenment uh, philosophes, Enlightenment liberals, Enlightenment humanists who are uh, prominent among the many uh, members of the, uh, the French society as well. OK, so I, I have some further hypotheses and things to say, but I've been going on now for a little over half an hour. So let me stop there and open things up for some discussion. Great.
0: And uh, I want to encourage people to raise your hand if you have questions. Maybe in some of these questions to you, uh, you'll get a chance to explore some of these hypotheses. But, um, You know, what about the idea that it was it was more Christian and it kind of had to be because religion was still so prominent in the culture. And maybe it's just like a a loosening of the original dogma. That's the secret formula.
1: Yeah. Well, so then what we would need to do is when you loosen the dogma, what in the now loosened dogma uh, leads to an argument for the abolition of slavery? And so what you'd have to do is to say, now finally, here's a biblical passage, but if we don't, say, interpret it dogmatically, it shows us how uh, abolition of slavery follows. Or if we loosen a dogmatic interpretation of Aquinas or a dogmatic interpretation of Luther, that would do the same thing. So that's worth exploring, but we need to know what, the, what that new nugget that emerges from the loosening is.
0: Well, it is a move towards secularization, but it's not a a full, it's not like the, um, you know, where you get to Marx and it's almost like a new religion that, uh, but, you know, in the early days and and there were, I mean, even, you know, is Rousseau part of the Enlightenment?
1: Uh, Not on my reading, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is very much anti-Enlightenment.
0: I know uh, one of his phrases was man was uh, born free, but everywhere in chains. Yes. So, and I mean, I, I know uh, that's from
1: example. the opening of his uh, social contract.
0: Okay. Well, and mm-hmm. I know Marx, for example, was, uh, you know, in contact with Lincoln and very supportive of the abolition movement. I mean, can you, you know, can you take it to say that, uh, you know, that it, it in fact was the socialist left that uh, helped encourage it or what became the socialist left?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, the abolition of of slavery movements are well underway before Marx is born. Uh, and if you also look at the early socialists, this is obviously uh, worthy of another Twitter space because then we would have to do the same thing or we'll look at the founding uh, uh, writers in the socialist tradition in the 1800s. So I don't want to go there right now, but uh, abolition of slavery, uh, there are no socialists in the movement in the 1700s and in the early 1800s in Britain, France, and in uh, um, America, so you might, you might then make an argument, you know, 50, 100 years later, they are add-on support, but that would be a, a different argument to make. But let me go back to your point about Rousseau, because he, he might be a candidate, because Rousseau is doing his writings, uh, first major publication, 1749, writing on through the 1760s. Now, he is an anti-enlightenment figure. And uh, uh, you are right to say that he opens his book, The Social Contract, by saying man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Uh, But if you read the rest of that paragraph, what Rousseau makes clear is that he's not arguing against the existence of chains. He seems to be arguing that there's nothing that we can do to remove the chains that human beings have forged for themselves. And it's only a question of what is going to justify the chains and what the right kinds of chains are going to be. And so when you then look at his, his positive philosophy, it ends up being a quite collectivist authoritarian political system and so we are in effect, going to be bound to each other collectively and overseen by an authoritarian manager of the general will, whatever that is. So there's nothing, I think, in Rousseau that is specifically against slavery.
0: That's great. Uh, That's fascinating. Let me um, I, I've thought this before because I, I've read that about, uh, you know, the big changes that happened in the 1780s. And I've always wondered, at least in Europe, uh, you know, it, 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 it had already started in places like Vermont of trying to the abolitionist movement. But in some ways, was there a type of America had achieved independence and this was Europe's way of trying to regain some moral high ground among their elites by saying, well, we're against slavery. Did that affect some of the timing for when it started to pick up in Europe?
1: I don't think so. I uh, I think the, uh, the people who are abolitionists in the 1700s and on into the 1800s are sincere, that they are animated by the ideas and a genuine moral repugnance against slavery. I don't think... Uh, if we set that argument aside, that the Europeans in the 1800s are worried enough about the ascendancy of America to feel that it's a threat to their sense of felt superiority. I think uh, uh, many more enlightened Europeans are curious about what's going on in America. Many of them are inspired by it. They don't they don't see it as a threat. In part because America still is economically, militarily, and so forth, a second-tier uh, nation and not really a threat to uh, uh, the, uh, the the major European accomplishments.
0: Okay. Again, I I want to encourage uh, people with questions to raise your hand. I've got a bunch more myself. Um, I read uh, somewhere that you know in the Middle Ages sometimes people sold themselves into. Something like slavery to stop from starving to death or being killed by highwaymen. Is that part of why it was more morally acceptable at the time?
1: Uh, Well, the the fact is true that in many cases people voluntarily accepted slavery in times of economic distress. Uh, We do see a kind of flip side of that even in our times where we you know, we were making the argument for being the entrepreneur of your life and the virtues of free market capitalism and everybody being self-responsible and so on. And we know that that's scary to a significant number of people. And so psychologically, they they resist the arguments for, for capitalism. And that's already in a culture that's very rich and has a huge number of opportunities. So we can extrapolate backwards to the, uh, the Middle Ages and the subsections of the Middle Ages that were in fact quite dark when uh, the idea of economic self-sufficiency was uh, very difficult and perhaps even impossible for a significant number of people and uh, so selling oneself into slavery would be seen as a, uh, a kind of job security or a kind of life security. Someone else with a flourishing business of some sort who can afford to buy me and look after me, will take that weight of economic responsibility off my off my shoulder. so that was a a real phenomenon.
0: Would you say feudalism is a type of slavery? Mm.
1: uh well, I think yes uh if you if you push on the idea of slavery and you make it just abstract instead uh, of chattel slavery the the idea being one individual is the owner of another individual and uh, you know can control what that individual does gets the fruit of his or her labor can Sell that person to another person. All of the things that go along with uh, with ownership, and you generalize it to something like we are all servants of society, and we are all owned by society. And you see, as feudal uh, uh, political theory says it, that we are organically to work together uh, to make the society work, but that we each have different skill sets. And so our service obligations take different forms. But there is a kind of bondage there. You are bound to the society, you are bound to the class uh, that your skill set is uh, said to be most suited to. And so that is in, in a more generalized form the same principle of slavery. You do not own yourself, you are not a free agent, but you are you are bound and you owe not another individual, but you owe society as a whole. So you can make that argument, and I think it has some teeth. Hmm. Uh,
0: When when conservatives are against the Enlightenment, are are they often you know, they're they're lumping in people like Kant, who who are sometimes considered part of the Enlightenment.
1: Yeah, sometimes uh, people use the Enlightenment more as a a historical label uh, rather than a philosophical label as a time period rather than a set of ideas that are being acted upon and if you uh, take the enlightenment as say the long 1700s maybe from your know, late 1600s on into the early 1800s and you say anybody who is intellectually prominent in that time period who is not a conservative or a traditionalist, I'm going to call that person an Enlightenment figure, then you are going to get some unusual people in the mix there. So you mentioned Kant. Now, uh, I have my arguments uh, uh, with lots of people about the place of Kant. uh, And I understand there is a case to be made that Kant does, in some respects, belong in the Enlightenment. Uh, You also will find people who want to put Rousseau in the Enlightenment. And I think in both cases, you have more of a historical labeling rather than a philosophical labeling. But
0: that is, I, I mean, you know, Kant was practically Rand's uh, nemesis. And, uh, you know, so when these people are, are saying they're against the Enlightenment, it's not that they're, I mean, some of these may be conservatives that, that are Rand fans. I'm curious uh, why you think uh conservatives are interested uh in who ended slavery more lately i'm not sure if you're trying to speak but uh
1: and once we'll again am i audible now yes okay good um I, yeah i think this uh, if you look at what's been going on in intellectual circles, to a large extent, conservatives have been in the wilderness for, say, two generations. Uh, the high culture establishments, including academic world, have been controlled more by people on the left of center and increasingly by people who are pretty far left of center. and one of the things they've been doing is uh, not letting conservatives into their institutions and uh, actively demonizing conservatism and so conservatism has been uh, having its wilderness years uh, uh, intellectually but I think there are signs that for the last maybe eight to ten years conservatism is re-energizing itself it is uh, um um forming new educational institutions, new cultural institutions. It's better funded. It's better organized. It's paying attention to the arguments that have been made by people on the left, the postmoderns and uh, the people who are uh, from other segments of the the left, including critical theory and and so forth. And so they are um, energized, uh, uh, better organized and better funded And so they are reasserting themselves on all of the major issues that uh, a serious intellectual and activist movement has to. Now to some extent, the conservatives are not controlling the narrative and have not been controlling the narrative. So what they've been doing is when the left says, here is the new issue of the week or this is the new issue of the year, the conservatives have been going back to school, getting up to speed, and are now uh, entering into the debate in better form. And so we are becoming aware of the conservative positions more than we were, say, 10 years ago and certainly 20 years ago. Uh, but conservatism still is a pretty big tent, and there are many it's a little subschools chop, yeah, don't, of conservatism. A little yeah, I'm getting choppy again. I can hear okay, you. so, yeah, so uh, uh, I think another thing that, of course, has happened is that as the left has been uh, controlling more of the high cultural institutions, uh, the implications of taking leftism seriously and putting it into practice. And many of the, the the blatantly unjust and ridiculous things that come out of that have also uh, energized a, a broader base of conservatism. So uh, they are they're they're fighting back more effectively, and so uh, they are on my radar in a way that they were not on my radar ten years ago, and certainly twenty years ago.
0: But it's at least a little bit trying to reclaim the moral high ground, like hey, we ended slavery, or.
1: Well, yes, yeah, that has to be has to be one of them, right? Because you know the argument from the left and uh, the argument from the Enlightenment liberals, uh, of which I would count myself, since I'm not on the left, but I'm also not a conservative, uh, has been that the the track record of conservatism with respect to slavery is uh, is is not strong, and in some cases. Uh, it, it's bad, you know, because the conservative position, uh, you know, 500 years ago was, was was nowhere with respect to the abolition of slavery. Certainly, a thousand years ago. So, in many cases, the the back to the good old days Christians, um, uh, you know, they I think they're just going to be non-starters on this. The more interesting Christians are going to be the ones I think of uh, as, the, as they are more modernized Christians. That is to say that they have either made their peace with the Enlightenment and the modern world, recognizing that it has genuine achievements under its belt, and they want to aggregate those with their understanding of, uh, of Christianity I think you know that there will be an interesting argument that could be made there uh uh and then slightly behind them uh, i think will be those christian conservatives who want to say that christianity has to be the proper foundation but that uh, we can fold in in a secondary way some of the achievements of uh, of the enlightenment on a on a uh, on a christian foundation I think that will be an interesting argument that can be made, but a less interesting argument
0: great um well again if if uh you want to ask a question you can request i um I still have some more myself you know I, within measuring this i, I of course ending slavery is a great measure of virtue, but it's, it's not necessarily the only measure when we're looking at historical figures. I mean, we wouldn't necessarily dismiss like ancient Greece for, for being for slavery.
1: Right. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, if you want to have a complete moral system, um, you know, overt slavery is only one evil that one will, uh, will need to address So any sort of just uh, ethnic hatred uh, is going to be another evil that a a moral uh, or a healthy morality will have.
0: I noticed uh, historically also that um, it seemed like slavery in the U.S. and um, even serfdom in Russia all – ended within kind of a few years of each other in a lot of places and I'm just wondering if there were is that just part of global forces that existed even then to just where people were and what was tolerated
1: yeah that's interesting to point out yeah so you're mentioning serfdom in Russia which ended in the 1860s and then slavery formally in the United States also in the 1860s so you might consider an interesting timeline kind of argument. You see in the late 1600s and early 1700s, some individuals making moral arguments and, against slavery and some objections to slavery on principle, that by the time you get to the end of the 18 or so the end of the 1700s, you get the formal movements, the activist societies being formed. So it's not just a, some individuals, it's a collection of individuals who are organized with a mission to end slavery. And then by the early 1800s, you get uh, some legislations in countries that dismantle this aspect of slavery, that aspect of slavery, this other aspect of slavery uh, in a reformist fashion over the course of the decades. And then by the time we get say to the 1860s, you get some more dramatic uh, things like Russia, the whole country just suddenly decides uh, because you have a more uh, uh, westernized, uh, slightly more liberal czar in power to uh, to to uh, to modernize by eliminating serfdom, and the United States, because of its complications and the Civil War, uh, is is in a position to do so. So I think there is something to to that, the individuals, to the institutions, to a long series of uh, political reforms to, in some cases, outright war uh, being necessary to to end it.
0: Great. Uh, Well, we've got uh, someone here. Uh, Sex is B is what I can see on the screen. Go ahead. Welcome.
2: Hi. hi. Thank you. Can can you hear me? Yes. Uh, Yes. Uh, My my full name is uh, Sex is Binary and Immutable. but uh, just a question uh in terms of capitalism and and what what role capitalism itself may have played in uh, ending slavery uh what, what I've heard is Adam Smith had two arguments against it one was uh that the uh, uh the actual quality of work uh of of a somebody who was being compensated was typically better than a a slave Um, That that was um, one of the arguments he made. Um, And then the other uh, was obviously the the sort of the the Fordonian argument of, um, you know, better to spread the money around um, uh, than sort of uh, curtail it and have a sort of inflationary impact by but by by, by not spreading capital around. Did, did, Did those arguments play have a role?
1: Yeah, I I think they did. So Adam Smith publishes Wealth of Nations in 1776. Prior to that, he had written a treatise that is more about human nature and morality, the theory of moral sentiments. And what's interesting about Adam Smith is he is a a man of the Enlightenment uh, with some of the particularities of the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, But he is certainly in an era in which there are many people making arguments against slavery, uh, and and, and he is, uh, because of his stature, uh, going to have some some influence. Now, my understanding of Adam Smith, though, is that he was aware of the moral arguments coming out of the Enlightenment that slavery is immoral. And he was on board with those arguments. So he did think that their slavery was morally uh, objectionable, not in keeping with the proper uh, proper human status. But he did not think that those moral arguments were going to be effective culturally or politically. And so he is making. kind of an intellectual activist judgment call that he thinks it's going to be economic arguments and economic institutions that will be more effective at bringing about the end of slavery if the end of slavery can be brought about and i'm not enough of an adam smith scholar to know whether uh, this is just a hypothesis my sense of smith on that very narrow issue is that he was A little bit pessimistic that slavery would really come to an end, but that if it were to come to an end, it would be because of the economic arguments that you nicely outlined and the the actual economic incentives that would work out uh, uh, in a more market-oriented society. Travis, you got a quick one? Yeah. <clears throat> Dr. Hicks, appreciate you. What do you see as the mutual support or synergism between Christianity and humanism or the Enlightenment? I mean, it's probably not a coincidence, right, that they grew up together, Protestantism and the Enlightenment, and then, you know, abolitionism eventually did use a lot of Christian language in society. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's interesting. I, my view is that when we talk about Christianity in the modern world, we're not really talking about the same thing as Christianity, six hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, or fifteen hundred years ago, and I, my my sense is that uh, Christianity has been modernized. That the kind of Christianity, even among strong principled Christians now, that they are still in a more fundamentally Renaissance, humanistic, and Enlightenment culture, and that their Christianity is. A humanized or a more humanistic Christianity, and so what they are what they are doing is residing upon a modern Enlightenment cultural basis and working to integrate that with their understanding of Christianity. So, my markers—you uh, know—at least one of the markers are that you know, you know, most Christians in America, in Western Europe, and so forth, they seem to have no problem with. Being a Christian and lending money at, uh, at, at interest and being capitalist and becoming rich and so forth. So that then is to say that if you are that kind of a Christian, uh, you're a different kind of Christian from 600 years ago who really thought you would go to hell if you charged interest on a loan. Right. Or if uh, you became a rich person and didn't give your money immediately away to charity, your soul was was uh, 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 I don't want to be too slang here, but toast in the sense you were going to be toasted in uh, toasted in hell. So what we have now is a more uh, individualistic, a more rational, a more tolerant form of Christianity that is kind of the. The religious center of gravity for christianity in the modern world and that's the result of uh, humanism and the enlightenment
0: great um well uh thank you so much for doing this session Stephen. uh uh, on wednesday we've got uh the atlas society asks andrew bernstein is going to be joining us talking about american racism that's going to be at 5 p.m eastern So uh, I know you're in uh, Argentina. Again, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for everyone who joined us. And uh, I enjoyed the session.
1: All right. Pleasure. Thanks, guys.